Because of record inflation, many Canadians are visiting food banks for the first time in their lives, and more and more families are increasingly reliant on regular food bank usage. The Veterans Association Food Bank has seen a sharp increase in demand, and they urgently need your help. If you are part of a community association such as Rotary, the Lions Club, or a Masonic Lodge, or if you work at a large company, our veterans need your help. Please organize a food drive or a reverse bottle drive to raise donations and funds to support the Veterans Association Food Bank in both Calgary and Edmonton. Individual donations are also welcome. To find out more about how you can help, please visit veteransassociationfoodbank.ca or you can find them on Facebook. Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we're rolling live for another edition of Operation Dangle Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. And I don't think I've had a military police dude on here before, which is a blend, both a veteran and a first responder all in one. You're a twofer. Andrew, That's right. th- thanks for joining me, brother. I appreciate it, Mark. It's awesome to be here. Well, I appreciate you. I, I forget exactly how I came across what you're up to, but I thought, hey, there's somebody doing something good. And uh, so I reached out to you. That's one of the biggest things that I do on the show is I find resources that are out there, bring them to the show so that people can find out about them. So let's talk a bit about that. Um, you were an MP for a great long time, 23 years, and yeah. but we won't hold that against you. <laughs> I, I'm still in, Mark. I, I haven't, uh, oh, haven't been in the show just yet. You're, so. you're still in. I'm sorry I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. Still fighting the good fight, and you are the founder of VA, A with a E-H. And uh, let's, let's talk about that. How did that come into being? Why did you put all that um, forward and found VA? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I'm a first responder as well. So the military uh, police side of things is a reserve uh, vocation for me. Uh, I started that when I was 19. I started as a police officer when I was 19 as well. Uh, so we've been doing both jobs concurrently for that time. Uh, back in 2014, I deployed as a close protection operator to Libya with a number of great individuals. Uh, was injured there in an attempt kidnapping, and uh, our team evacuated that embassy. Um, when I got home, I went right back into my role as a detective and not taking any leave because we had to evacuate the embassy and I had sort of chewed into that time that I promised my employer I would return. 
and things didn't go well for me. I started to uh, become symptomatic with, uh, you know, operational stress injury um, symptoms, uh, started to go down a very, very terrible hole of, of addiction, uh, anger, uh, you name it. Um, so when I started getting better, one of the things that I chose to take on as part of my wellness was a service dog. Okay. So I have a, a service dog named Riggs. Uh, and shortly after receiving him and staying on the job, um, I ended up at the Ontario Police College uh, as a sergeant teaching new recruits. Uh, I did not anticipate the impact that, you know, Riggs and I would have on, on young minds uh, entering a very tough profession, uh, but it seemed to be quite impactful and encouraged by, you know, many recruits as I as I would uh, interact with, you know, hundreds of them uh, every three months. Um, they were they were encouraging for me to take, you know, my message and make it a little bit more public. They were very generous with donations because uh, I would take on trying to raise money for service dogs for other, other people like me. Uh, so I thought, you know, why not make it official? You know, start a not-for-profit uh, with the goal of once one day becoming a charity. Um, you know, and raise money for service dogs. Uh, and, you know, quite honestly, it becomes the bigger part of our, our mission is, is kindness. So any act of kindness for a veteran or emergency responder, you know, I'm open uh, to advocating for it, to funding it. Um, yeah. So I'm just a conduit. VA is just a conduit for the, the you know, the collective kindness of the community. Um, so, you know, it's just me and a couple other board members and some great community partners doing whatever we can for whomever asks. So let's roll back the clock. You get yeah. back, you get back from Libya yes. after a major incident. And yeah. You said that you started to see OSI symptoms, so symptoms of PTSD, which I prefer it called PTSI, but that's another conversation. Yes. Um, tell me about those symptoms. What were they? What did they? What did they look like? You know, they they crept up on me um, with with you know very little warning. Like these were you know reactions that I was having originally. Uh, originally to, to people's, uh, it was mainly dealing with people, which in the business of policing is not, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, but in my, in my private life, not so much when I was working, uh, angry outbursts at members of the, of the community, road rage, um, my, my alcohol consumption was, uh, Every day, not necessarily to excess, but for the wrong reasons. So dealing with people on the street as a cop, do you have, uh, is there an instance that pops to mind? Uh, You know, in my professional life, I still remained very much composed, very good at my job. Um, You know, had loads of empathy. Uh, But it was more in my private life when I would, uh, I one example for me was an interaction when trying to return something to a store. 
uh, and the clerk telling me that I couldn't return it and question my integrity. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So I went from, this was the very, very first thing that sort of tipped me off to something's not going well, Andrew, like this is not a normal reaction and it's not one that I would have had a year ago. So did you recognize it, uh, right after it happened or even during, like as it was happening that you're like, Whoa, this is a bit much. Um, I, I must have, because there was a part of it that was scary to me. Like, you know, this is even as it was happening. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Uh, Self-awareness, Andrew. Yeah. But it wasn't enough for me to stop. Like I felt compelled Mm. to get my message out. There is this overriding, um, uh, Fight, fight. idea of, do you know who the hell I am? Do you even know what I just did? Like, this was just moments ago. I almost died. Yeah. Right? No, you know, I mean, we didn't almost die, but there, it was it was dangerous. And I could not get over that com- compulsion to let my feelings be known, uh, especially when it came to integrity issues. And, and in your service, were you, was your integrity questioned in your service? Never. What do you think it I was mean, about I it? Mean it? I mean, it, it gets, it gets uh, questioned, you know, when you go on the stand and stuff like that. But I've never yeah. been uh, uh, accused of any such things. Okay. So yeah, I've never been charged under the Police Service Act. Uh, my, my complaints from Touch the public <laughs> are, yeah, are... I can think of one, actually, maybe two, uh, and one of them was vexatious, deemed vexatious. So, no, I've, I, I've had a very a very good career full of actions that would speak to, you know, my positive integrity. So uh, maybe that was just it, that there was some, you know, some underlying guilt there uh, that sort of tipped me off. But I said a lot of very, very mean things to that lady, and she didn't deserve that. Um, I ended up finding her two years later and apologized. Oh, good. So, and how, how did yeah. that apology land? So great. Um, she remembered, surprisingly. <laughs> Not surprisingly um, at all. <laughs> and uh, you know what? All she did, she was working behind the till, uh, and she's probably at that time – touching her late fifties and came immediately from behind the till, gave me a hug and said, God bless you. And that was it. And I cried and I said, I was sorry. And, and, uh, that was, yeah, that's all I, that's all I think both of us needed. So there's so much power in a true and real apology, you know, not a bullshit apology where they say, well, I'm sorry if you were offended. What a douchey right. thing to say. It's so douchey. No, but, no I uh, thought her out specifically. Yeah. I, I was so, it was, it was so against what my true character was that it, it left that uh, scar that, you know, or actually at that point a wound that just needed some mending. And, well, it, it's uh, a good, ex- good example, and, and you worded it really well. It's against your true character. That's what the injury is, Andrew. It's, yeah. it's disconnection, disconnection from the person that you know that you are. It's when you're out of alignment with your true self, that's what the injury is. And usually manifests in nasty ways just like that. Yeah. So 
at what point when you got back from Libya did you kind of connect the dots and go, holy shit, I think I might have an OSI? You know, it wasn't until um, my wife called me out on it. Mm. Um, so we were high school sweethearts. We've been together since we were 18. Um, during that period of time, uh, much much further ahead than when I returned from Libya. I, I had been injured for years and just, you know, was just getting by. Um, so I've done and said a lot of terrible things to my wife and and I'm very, very grateful to still have her in my life. Uh, you know, there was, you know, an evening, it was, uh, I think it was January 3rd, 2015, I remember the date because I was a Patriots fan at the time and they had lost. And my wife was out uh, doing some volunteering and I was, uh, while well, she was gone, watching the kids and, and uh, you know, partaking in a number of drinks. You know, probably by the time she got home, I was on to my second bottle of wine. And one thing that, uh, and it goes back to that guilt, and uh, she had mentioned basically... Uh, that she she does everything. Uh, I'm not a participatory father, and I needed to step up. Um, going back to, you know, that attack on my character, uh, I got very very angry. Um, you know, I tossed some some things about the house, and and I left the house, and I shouldn't have. I was you know was likely not capable to do so, but it happened. Um, and when I got home that, after I sobered up, I came home. And the next morning, my wife woke me up with the kids beside the bed and said, you know, you need, you need to get some help. And it was said with love, not with anger. And in a way that I knew that that meant that that help included them. Yeah. It wasn't on my own. And it was that moment that I finally admitted to myself. And I... And I remember promising her that I would get better. And I didn't know how difficult it was going to be, but that I would get better. And, and at this point, this just means I will continue to try to be my best because I may never be you know, better. The, the person I once was, the person that she fell in love with at 18, but I can still be a great person making best of what I have been given uh and there's many parts of this injury that i'm grateful for there's a crap ton that i'm i get mad about every now and then but there are certainly some i mean va's was is born out of my injury and the good work that gets done from it every day so um i know i'm going around your question now but you know it was that day the next day january 4th 2015 uh that I started real work on getting better. I'm so glad that you shared that exact story. And I, I tell you that what that uh, wife of yours is an incredible human being yes. to, cause she couldn't have said you need help, my dear. She couldn't have said it in a better way. Uh, that was a brilliant heartfelt way to do it from a place of compassion instead of, you're an asshole, get out, which, which happens. happens a lot. You know, yeah. you're an asshole, get out. And 
probably more often than not, that's exactly what happens, which yeah. only exacerbates the injury, only makes it worse, uh, only increases the isolation. The isolation is the pain. The isolation from the person you used to be, the inability to be that person, and desperately wanting to be the person that uh, that you actually are, to be your authentic self, but you just don't have access to that person anymore. You know, that's yeah. that's what the injury is. And to have that loving, supportive, you've got to do this, and this is serious, and do it for us. You know, had your children by the bed. That's beautiful. I'm so grateful that you that you shared that story. Uh, what a spectacular yeah. family that you have. Yeah. Um, of course, I didn't have that in my first marriage, so it uh, it was get the fuck out. <laughs> no, well, like, as you we agree to, that's quite often. Yeah, you know, the the result, and it, it's hard to fault the partnership. No, uh, because. No. I don't. You know, a lot of people don't understand it. That's not necessarily a fault of their own. We, as the injured, aren't great at explaining it, right? Because we're in a constant struggle with ourselves and our identity. Well, we don't know uh, a lot of times. In my first marriage, exactly. if, you, if you would have told me I had PTSD, I'd say up your kilt twice sideways with a wire brush. Like, no, yeah. like there's no way that, that, that I am injured for my service. No way that I'm the problem here. And uh, I just didn't believe it. It wasn't until my second marriage when um, uh, my, my kid, uh, the crumbs come off the plate and he's just this sweet little seven or eight-year-old and I'm down on one knee with a knife hand out, Dawson, what in the hell is wrong with you? And I watch his face melt. Um, and then my wife puts her hand on and I couldn't, it was the same. You know, like when you're with that service agent, that uh, customer service lady, I couldn't stop. I knew I should stop. I could see that I was doing harm, but I couldn't stop. I was a runaway train until my my wife snapped me out of that state by putting her hand on my shoulder and gently saying, Mark, they're just crumbs. We can clean them up. And that was the night that I finally reached out for help and I picked up the phone. What was your, when you reached out for help, what what was your first line of defense? Who did you call? So the first thing I, I did was actually um, go to the local uh, transition center on base in London. I'm, I'm not sure why I felt that that was the first place to go. Uh, my impression of them had always been one of neutrality. Like this is where sold soldiers go and when they're looking at release and um, you know, they're guided into transition. I know, you know, not everybody's stories about that is positive, but that was how I viewed them, you know, almost seven years ago. So I went in there and I spoke to someone uh, and their recommendations suggested going to the medical officer. Um, I did not seek help through my police service at first. I did not feel that they would uh, help me in the way that I needed. And which police force are you with? I'm with the London Police Service. Okay. And that's in Ontario. Yeah. Um, I, come to fi- I come to find that as you know, time went on and I eventually had to mention things to them, that they were supportive, that they did have my back, Um, but that wasn't my initial, you know, the culture of policing 
is what had me go in a different direction. The best of the worst, right? Well, it's different uh, department to department, right? And Exactly. Um, I know of people in the RCMP right now that have been blackballed because they reached out for help. And yeah. uh, they're getting the suck it up buttercup routine from douchebags that are their superiors and um, in rank only, not in character. And yeah. it, it, it's horrible because that creates sanctuary trauma. You know, the people that are supposed to be there to, to help you are telling you that uh, you're just weak. And I mean, that was always the case in the 90s. <laughs> and, and even uh, 10 years ago, that was always the case no matter where you went. But over the last, uh, probably since um, uh, 2015, it's starting to get better and better and better. But uh, we still have a ways to go because right now there are RCMP detachments for sure where it is not safe. It is a career ender if you come forward and say, I need some help. I need to be uh, put on light duties or something. I need to be put, you know, in the army would say, put me on Gara duty, put me in garrison, make me a Gara trooper. And um, just. Well, it's not universal treatment. Uh, I would not, not in a million years, Mark, say that I was treated the same way as others. Yeah. Um, I, I have no explanation for that. I don't know why I've had. I'm not going to say an easy time because it is nothing short of difficult every day. Um, but some people have a lot more hurdles to, to climb over. The basic misunderstanding uh, with the leadership is they don't understand that it's an injury, not a weakness. They don't get that. And so that's the number one lesson that I repeat and repeat and repeat on the show is that it isn't a weakness. It's an injury that nobody, nobody is completely... Uh, protected from getting an OSI, no matter how tough you are. And um, understanding that, that you can put somebody in an MRI machine and they can actually see the neurological pathways, they can actually see the neurological injury. It's a brain injury and it's a bugger to treat. But um, that's that's the big thing, you know. That's the one point that where if people understood that, uh, they would have at least some compassion towards it and they would drop the stupid heartless suck it up buttercup routine. That's got to end. Well, I think that we're, um, to use a, you know, a policing uh, context. I I really think we're only a few chief promotions away from real change. Mm. The generations are creeping up. The ones that really truly believe in wellness as a force multiplier uh, they're just, we just need some people to, to get out of the way um, because it's coming and there's just a few more resistors, uh, you know, in line, in the queue. And um, once that occurs, I, I, I do think we'll see some real, real change. That's my prediction. I hope so. And uh, the Mounties have the MPF as their union, I guess you'd call it. And um, I know that they are leaning towards mental health supports, but uh, not all the detachments are on board. So I hope they figure out how to get that over the uh, the finish line. Yeah, well, there you know, there's a in general uh, organizations, uh, and I'm not saying that it's unnecessary, but it'd be nice if we came up with a you know a balance. Uh, we still favor policy over people. Yeah. All decision-making 
uh, from organization is still very stuck and rooted in that. And I know it's, it's to give this illusion of fairness, but we leave people behind and that's not fair. So there has to be some injection of, of actually looking at individuals and what they need in the development of policies or procedures. And in regards to, you know, especially small RCMP detachments, having some friends in those, um, human resources affects policy and attitude. Uh, so those superintendents, chief superintendents, inspectors, whoever are running those detachments uh, are sandwiched uh, with responsibility that to the higher organization and that to hopefully the people that they work for. And I say that because I believe it as a leader, you work for them. And the pressures from having to maintain operational status in those small places, I really think has them forget their humanity. And in larger organizations, you can see, uh, example, the OPP with the current commissioner. You talk to most OPP officers, at least those I've encountered, although a, a large organization like the RCMP with a similar model with small detachments, having a leader straight from the top profess publicly on, on many, many platforms that wellness and mental health matters to him, that that is affecting change throughout the organization and is starting to be felt or is felt at the front line. If it's the expectation of the leader that this is truly a priority for me, then it's going to echo down like any priority for any, any organizational leader. Yeah, the message is important, but uh, lip service isn't enough. You know, there, there has yeah. to be action. There has to be structural change, you know, structural supports where the SOPs as well for for critical incidents, you know, um, making uh, critical incident stress debriefings an SOP, like this is just what we do, whether you think you need it or not, we're just going to do it. Because when, when, um, uh, and you never know which one's going to be the one, you know, you, you just never know. You could, it could be your hundredth uh, motor vehicle accident, the hundredth time that you've seen uh, mangled dead people in a car, but for some reason, this particular one was the one. And it hits you different. There was just something about it, about the smells, uh, about something, the burning flesh, whatever it is. There was something that hits you different this one time. So if the SOP is um, some form of critical incident stress debriefing, even if it's a self-check-in where you go through a checklist, you know, like was anything different this time? Uh, was was What are my senses? What, how am I perceiving the situation? Is it different? And then monitor your, your having the self-awareness to monitor your behavior after, you know, to realize, hey, I'm being really edgy. You know, I'm being really uh, short-tempered here. Hmm, ding, 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 I better go talk to somebody. But yeah. ha- having that high level of, of self-awareness and with each other as well. You know, we know when our partner's out of character. We can tell from the body language, the look on their face. And so when one of our coworkers is, is out of character and we can see it, hey, let's talk. You're not being you. Let's talk. You yeah. know? Being comfortable with that. I mean, that's, that's something I don't know if I ever, ever would have 
dreamed about doing with, you know, with my partners uh, as a younger officer, like it, 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 the culture wasn't there and, and it is, it is needed. And I, and I think it's changing too. I've seen it in, in my own soldiers, the openness that they have, uh, to ask those tough questions of their peers, to care about how they're doing. And, and even at one point to my amazement, uh, we were all sitting, uh, after a range sitting around a, a campfire and one, one of my corporals just started talking about how they felt. And I swear it went the entire circle of people talking about what was going on in their lives in a constructive and supportive way. And these were soldiers, yeah, 20 of them. That's the power. That's the power of recovering out loud. I've seen it in peer support yeah. groups again and again and again. When I share one of the, the big ticket items in my life, like the really big ones, like, being raped or, or molested as a child, the big ones. Um, all of a sudden people go, <gasps> and they share the big ones. And I can't even tell you how many people have said to me, Mark, I've never told anybody this in my freaking life, but because I heard you say it, I can say it. And then they say it to me for the first time in their life. And then finally they say it to their therapist. And sometimes finally they can say it to the world, but it's the secrets yeah. that eat you up. It's the secrets that eat you up. You've got to find a, somebody that you can uh, tell them to. You can't keep them bottling up because that's shame. Shame for the actions of somebody else or shame for a situation that you didn't create. You, you can't hang on to that shame. Yeah, it's always occupying space in your mind. It is. It yeah. is. And there's uh, that book, um, Trammel, or Your Body Keeps the Score. I've yes. got to read that still, but I understand the concept. Where you are physically, you get physically ill. It could be your spine uh, is out of alignment, or your guts are are rotten, and uh, or headaches. I mean, there's so many things that um, that a psychological trauma becomes a physical trauma, and it gets trapped in your body. There's all kinds of illnesses. Your immune system is down because the cortisol is pumping all the time, so cancer rates go up. Uh, which we see in veteran first responder world. It's not just the stuff that we're exposed to, like the chemicals in that, um, but we have a ridiculous cancer rate. Um, That's trauma. That's trapped trauma that hasn't been processed. You've got to let it out. You've got to talk about it or it'll make you ill. Yeah, no, I I agree. Yeah, the, the amount of damage our own mind can do to our body is, I mean, and it makes sense if, if you, if you give it any time, the process in your own mind, right? We, what, what we think about, uh, it manifests in our body, right? So it's, when you talk about it being an injury, uh, even if people don't understand or appreciate that, I think that's something that they can understand is what we think is what we are. Uh, and when there's processes within our, our own brain that are going on, because of our injury against our will, uh, it it creates a lot of damage. Like like you said, it's not uncommon for veterans to have, uh, or people with OSI to have constant headaches, GI issues, sexual dysfunction, Mm -hmm. high rates of cancer, um, arthritis. Yes. Like, and this is all because of those terrible chemicals that our brain is producing in response to our trauma. So, 
Yeah, I'm not sure anybody fully understands uh, the the mind-body connection uh, from a physiological uh, point of view, but I saw it in basic training. I mean, basic training is just Wally World. It was no big deal. You know, we're in way, way back in Cornwallis. But that was for me. I mean, the first night was stressful. I didn't uh, sleep a wink. But there was this one fella, and the stress was so bad that it gibbled up his spine. His spine went all twisty. And he, he lost the ability to even function because his spine was so gibbled up uh, just from the anxiety. And I've had people on the show to tell me that they've been wheelchair-bound because of anxiety. Like, it, it can mess up a person's body that much to be wheelchair-bound, to be bedridden because of uh, anxiety. The physical manifestation of um, can be incredible. Uh, one in particular, like she was straight up paralyzed, paralyzed for months, and it was all anxiety. But she was physically paralyzed. She couldn't move her feet. Oh, wow. And, uh, I mean, that's an extreme, but it happens. And it shows us the power of the mind-body connection and, and how it can manifest. So if it can go that far, think about all the places in between uh, that could be happening yeah. to your body and to your health. And, um, like it's, and again, it gets back to, you have to talk about it. You have to get help. And the earlier you get on it, um, the easier it is to treat and making it a soft place to land at your place of work is so important. And that's a message to all the leaders out there. Like you, if you don't make mental health injuries, a soft place to land, if you don't make it easy for, for people to put their hand up and go, yeah, I think I need to talk to somebody. I need some help over here. And if you don't facilitate that help, you're destroying people. Yeah. And that, uh, to circle back to, um, you know, what I had first done, uh, in making that decision to get help and going to the transition center and them recommending the medical officer. And that terrified me. I'm thinking, well, okay, this is how it has to go. I went and saw that individual. And when I, after I told my story, the first thing that the captain said to me was, I believe you. I believe that you have an OSI and we're going we're gonna to start working on it right now. It was, there was no ambiguity in the message from that MO. It was very straight. It was in a direction of hope. Uh, and I left there, you know, not feeling better, but feeling good that this organization that I thought would twist this around and I'd be out the next day was actually at the root of it saying, no, we're going to help you. Now the chain of command that that that's a different story, <laughs> but you know my 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 first interaction was one that was positive. I got interim help in the community uh, from a, a psychologist, and then eventually uh, into the OSI clinic in town, which I have nothing but amazing things to say about. Uh, they have been my constant through all of this. So, um, and that that's all through you know, the back system. And is it perfect? No, it's not. There's a lot of things I could recommend, but, you know, we have constraints. Um, so for what, for the, what those constraints are, it's served me well. They've always been in my corner. Um, they're, they're very accessible. Um, and, 
you know, I don't think that I've had, I've been, I would be able to have some of the successes I had without their help. So. Well, it's good to hear the, um, the good stories about Veterans Affairs Canada, especially with everything that's coming out. Uh, there are yes. people right now because of the veterans, multiple veterans that have been offered medical assisted and dying by multiple caseworkers. Although the, <laughs> the minister just wrote me a letter, I just read it today, saying, "No, no, just one caseworker." Okie dokie, Smokey. Whatever <laughs> you, whatever you say, you know, I've got physical yeah. evidence otherwise, but you just keep deny, deny. Uh, that's what you do. But uh, yeah, there's at least five caseworkers that I've been able to find personally. Oh wow! But um, and if I can find them, but the entire Department of, uh, of Veterans Affairs can't find them, then they're not looking. And exactly. It, it's, it's just that simple. As I'm just a one-man show here with a podcast, and I found five. <laughs> so uh, pretty ridiculous. But anywho, it's good to see the, the good stories as well. And I'm grateful for, the, for what I've received from VAC as well. Um, every single thing that I received from VAC, I didn't find it very accessible. Um, it was a meat grinder. It was a five-year fight. But I got it, and I'm grateful for it. Um, it, was, it was brutal, though. Like, the, the evaluations I had to go through, um, what that did to me, what my wife saw me go through, brutal. Absolutely brutal. But we got it done. I'm grateful for it, and um, now here I am living off my veteran benefits. Super grateful. Well, so there's both sides. I, mean, I don't have, I don't have the same uh, opinion about things like disability claims. Mm, I'm okay. just talking about access to mental health supports. Oh, okay. Disability claims are entirely different. I have an entirely different opinion about that. But well, yeah, um, that, that is the um, the one area where it seems to be fairly quick access is that if you put your hand up and say hey i got ptsd it's um they get you into the system into the mill uh pretty quickly but how long did you wait like for me it was a 10-month wait uh they they did the stabilization 10-week series as a stopgap, but um which i think really needs to be rethought a lot but uh i didn't see a therapist for about 10 months how long was it uh, for you once you entered the system so um, to see the community support, that was fairly quick. I want to say within a couple of weeks. Nice. I saw that individual uh, an, a number of times. I'm not sure if it was quite 10, but it, it, would, it would be between, you know, 5 and 10. Um, and then I would say maybe six, six or seven months after that into the OSI clinic. So still six or seven months to be fully <laughs> in, in yeah. you go. Yeah. Yes. Uh, they're ta- they keep talking about all the millions that was put forth so that people don't have to wait. Um, and for the audience, if you're in Canada, when you call the Veterans Affairs line, you are entitled without evaluation, without having to jump through hoops, you're entitled to, I think, 20 sessions on the phone with a mental health professional. 20. And, and that's also is for your kids it's for your spouse anybody attached to you um you can zoom call or maybe it's phone but uh either way you can have access to that mental health perfection to 20 sessions um at at no cost and it's uh i don't think there's much barrier to entry there and that's the last time i saw this come forward that's how it was explained but these programs are changing all the darn time but um the the mental health crisis line, 
that's the one that you call on the on the MyVac account website or veterans.gc.ca, and you are entitled to that. So that is a stopgap well as well that I'm that I'm happy about. It um, still it's not as good as actually being in the office with somebody. And uh, and the other thing I'm going to say to the audience is that when you start this journey. You don't have to stick with the first one. I mean, give it an honest go. <laughs> give it an honest go. You know, make sure that you're not the asshole in the equation if you're not clicking with your therapist. Um, so give it a give it an honest attempt, but don't feel trapped. Um, you've got to just keep going through therapists until you find the one you go, oh, okay, I trust you. I, I'm clicking with you. This feels more comfortable. Um Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes people go through three, four, five before they find the one that they like. But keep trying all the same. And uh, there's been lots of them on this show, so you can pick and choose. I've got a lot of good ones that have been guests on this show. Um, let's talk about being a service dog handler. So when did you finally get um, your first uh, service dog? And uh, Well, or not your first, but your only service dog. Yes. And uh, what was that process like? Oh, well, uh, terrible enough that I started my own organization to help. <laughs> is, that what, is that what usually happens? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that was, you know, referencing back that, you know, that conversation that I had with my wife and kids about getting better is part of that was, you know, a promise to explore every, every potential. Um, you know, I think like most of us, when we've, you know, figure this all out to, you know, we're recommended different PTS retreats and, and that is, you know, my journey started with one of those as well. Which one? I went to project trauma support. See, there's another Uh, one I don't know about. Let's get him on the show, make an intro. Yeah. um, It was uh, life changing for me. I mean, many of them that, you know, they follow a similar model and, you know, the name of, of the retreat is, you know, basically the, the brand. Um, but a lot, you know, having, uh, participated in a couple and, 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 you know, it's a similar formula and it works. Um, but it changed a lot for me. Um, you know, going in there with a very close mind about the entire process and then, you know, coming out, you know, again, not better, but good. Like, it was a positive experience, but there were two, uh, two veterans on the program, um, that had service dogs. And I, when I didn't have a dog at home, I had, I'd never had a dog as an adult. In fact, I was quite repulsed by them. I, you know, any that I ever had as a kid were, you know, they, they were swamp dogs, they were farm dogs and you know, they weren't allowed inside. And there was no connection to the attachment of, of, you know, what a great dog can be. But I saw how these guys were interacting with, you know, these animals and saw what the animals were doing for them and recognized some parallels in my own life. And so when I got home, I talked about it with my wife. She was, of course, floored because, you know, it was not something she'd ever think I would ever say, (laughs) you know. Um, And there was a lot of questions behind it, but ultimately she, you know, was supportive of us trying did I think it was going to be as difficult? Not in a million years. Um, you know, you get on and you try to find these organizations that supply dogs. And, you know, my mindset at the time was, well, this is such a wonderful tool. 
these individuals are out in the community. Uh, they are trying to get back to work. They are, um, you know, being social. And a lot of it is connect as because of the connection to this animal. Um, why aren't there more of these? Cause I couldn't find them. And the wait lists were two years plus, or, you know, sorry, but the wait lists are so long that we're just not accepting names. Now, wh- where are you at personally for w- what you think the certification level should be and what uh, service dog certification should look like? I know of people firsthand that have received dogs. It's a service dog. No, that's yeah. a mutt from the pound. And yeah. uh, which is fine if it's a mutt from the pound. It, it, like it doesn't, you don't, you don't have to be a purebred to be a service dog, but it does need no, the training. Be any kind of yeah. dog, really, but it needs the training, and it's a lot of training. These service dogs yes. are running a, around forty thousand dollars because of the huge amount of training that has to be done. You know, um, it's not a service dog just because it's a dog and with with a exactly. cute little vest. So there's only, uh, I believe, three provinces in Canada that have you know dedicated provincial acts. There's nothing federal. Um, there's probably some of your listeners that are aware that there were, um, some trials, uh, sort of piloted by veterans affairs. I believe there might be another one going on right now. And I believe, you know, my opinion is, uh, conveniently found to be inconclusive because of the huge liability and cost. If, you know, if you were to take on service dogs through veterans affairs, um, there's a lot of regulation that would, would have to come into place. Um, you know, you can't centrally train the dogs to ensure that they are all of the same standard. Uh, there are standards out there that uh, many service dog uh, trainers cannot agree on as to what's the best, uh, and it creates a lot of infighting. Um, I might be so far as to say that it is like some of these trainers, if they would unite for the benefit of the veteran, uh, there would be less roadblocks in ensuring that these service dogs become more of a reality for those that are looking for them. But right now, other than, you know, the small income percent you might get on your tax return, there's not a whole lot uh, out there for uh, service dog handlers in the way of uh, financial we just had a, a note pop up from a friend of mine, Jason Trenholm. Hey, Jason. So he says, OSI CAN, which is an organization that he's a big part of. It's a peer support, a national peer support uh, network. So yeah. Oscar Sierra, India, OSI-CAN, Alberta, provides resources to get on the list. They have a partnership with um, British Columbia and Alberta guide dogs, and a true service dog is provided at no cost to the peer. And, um, so there, there's one resource there as well, but I, I, um, there has to be national legislation that with a national certificate that says you're good anywhere and very, very clear rules of where you can go with a service dog, which should be anywhere. (laughs) You know, that would be my dream, you know, for the, for the federal government to take it on. Um, you know, I'm currently, uh, mid-document on a briefing note for our local MPP uh, in hopes that, you know, we can try to get a provincial 
act here. This gentleman has agreed to, uh, unfortunately, only as a private member's bill. Um, you, know, you know, the chances of those getting through are 50-50, but, you know, at least the, there is a commitment there to look at the briefing note uh, and, and try to help out um, provincially. Um, but like you said, uh, it's, if it's provincial, it's not universal. Even the provincial acts, although very similar to each other, uh, there's not a whole lot of teeth to it. Um, you know, when we talk about, you know, the certification of these dogs and the amount of different options there are for different trainers to choose and they're not being a, a standard, um, it lends to a lot of interpretation or misinterpretation uh, of the handlers. You know, um, my, my service dog, Riggs, uh, talking about organizations that supply, uh, is certified through Courageous Companions, which is out of Alberta, uh, run by veterans, and they also will uh, provide dogs at no cost. In fact, the, certif- the certification for my dog, they sent someone from Alberta for three days to certify him. Uh, so, you know, I, I would definitely, you know, if you are a listener looking at the potential of a service dog, they are another organization that I would pump up. With Riggs, though, where he came from, um, you know, not necessarily a place I, I would go back to. He, in fact, is the third dog I received, the first two not working out for me. Oh, okay. Uh, and one actually bit a number of people. Oh, boy. So this was, this was a dog I was given uh, to take out into the community um, with, you know, very little instruction on how to be a handler, uh, reminding you again, I didn't have dogs prior to taking on being a service dog. Didn't even know how to walk with a dog. You know, I was um, blessed to have a friend who was a canine officer that took me out for training because it was very clear I had no idea how to use this dog. Um, nor was he provided task-specific training on how to react to my stimulus uh, from, you know, my symptoms. So a lot of that I ended up having to sort of source out and learn on my own, uh, which, you know, led to, you know, the eventual formation of this not-for-profit so that, you know, I could educate and I could learn and, you know, people who might see me as a resource could say, hey, where should I go? What should I do? Because I have that lived experience. Um, And try to relieve some of that financial uh, burden to those people that are looking because there are free, there are free, free programs. Uh, they're just not, they're just not everywhere. And depending on your geographical location, um, some places won't even supply service dogs if you're outside of their service area. So um, starting to raise funds and money for, the reputable private suppliers uh, became sort of a goal for me uh, just because that was the, the direction I had to go to circumvent, you know, a two year wait list. Have you had much uh, barrier to entry for entering different buildings and establishments with your service dog? Uh, I, I would say, you know, 99% of the time, no. Uh, on occasion, yes, and often it is just, you know, can I see this or that? Um, 
which isn't really like based on the, the way the laws are today. I, you know, you don't have to do a lot of the things that, you know, business owners or whatever ask of you, but you know, I can, I comply like there's, I don't look for a fight, uh, but it's very rare. Um, you know, I'm relatively in good shape. I walk tall. Uh, I'm sure most of the people that ask me likely just think I'm taking my regular dog for a walk and I want that dog to be able to go everywhere with me. Some sort of, um, if there was a national certification, you could, there could be a mission patch of that certification that goes right on the vest and yes, uh, one, one on each side. And then, you know, it's right there. Dum, dum, <laughs> yeah, conversation exactly. over. Yes. Instead of, because it is easy, you know, I, the vest that I have for my dog, because he came from a private organization that didn't have branded vests. Um, you know, I, we got it from, uh, like a, a well-known vest provider and just purchased, uh, you know, Velcro for him. Yeah. What's the difference? uh, Sorry. What's the difference between, for the audience, the difference between an actual service dog and an emotional support animal? Okay. That's a good question. Uh, so, um, so with service dogs, so dogs, can be emotional support animals, but there are only really service dogs. You're not going to have a service goat. You're not going to have a service horse, right? They might be emotional support animals, uh, but won't fall into that category. A service dog um, has to provide uh, medical assistance, typically in at least three categories. Um, So an example could be Uh, You know, if you are having a panic attack, you would exhibit uh, likely a tell because these animals are very good at picking up body language um, and body posture and movements. So they can respond to that, uh, whether that be leaning against you or providing some other form of interruption. So that that would be one task. Uh, It could be um, retrieving your medication, right, if you are... Uh, unable to, or you're forgetful. Uh, it could be maybe if you have epilepsy that uh, it pushes a button inside your house that calls, you know, your immediate next of kin, um, interrupts your nightmares. It has to perform some kind of function and not just exist for you to pet. Really, uh, that would be an emotional support animal. Uh, so they have to provide some sort of tasks to assist in daily living. And that's no small amount of training uh, to uh, get that in, into a dog. Yeah, two years, usually, minimum. Yeah, I mean, I've heard stories of the odd one um, just naturally, instinctually uh, performing some of those tasks. But uh, one fellow in particular that I'm thinking about, the dog that he received, I'm just like, it's a puppy. Like it's not old yeah. enough to have received any um, uh, any training. This is not a service dog. This is a dog. There, there are um, certain programs. So some uh, will do uh, so completely organizationally trained. You know, it's going to take eighteen months to to two years before you'll receive that dog. Uh, and it should come to you fully trained other than the fact that, you know, we need to have a handler's course, right? Course. So that, that uh, you know, the pairing is 
is working because sometimes an animal might, might not take to a, to a handler and that we can start working on that very task specific stuff. Like what do you need here? Right. Hopefully that's been worked up to in those two years and not just dropped onto you on your lap after those two years. Um, and then there are also owner trained. So the, the model there is, uh, you know, you, you have to be in, you have to be capable. That's the big thing, right? And those of us with this injury have definitely been in a state where we probably weren't capable of looking after or training an animal. So you have to be at a certain state in your journey to be successful. Uh, but it costs quite a bit less uh, to do owner training. You're not relying on, you know, the service dog provider to go through all that care, the food, everything else. So that ends up landing on, the soon-to-be handler, and the price is almost half, depending on where it comes from. So it's becoming more of a popular model, but you have to be ready for it. Uh, and in some cases, people think they are, but it becomes a lot bigger challenge. There's a bit of a hybrid one as well, where the organizations providing the dogs will seek out foster families. So those foster families typically are you know, talented dog, hand, dog trainers, uh, and they get the dog through, you know, the first, uh, the growing years where they're learning basic obedience. And then in the following year, start working on that more task-specific training and the public access. Um, so that's a popular model now as well. Again, just because the costs are reduced. Uh, because most people aren't getting these for free. Right? They're having, you know, to come up with other ways to, to find the money. No, I threw out a number there of uh, 40000 What would you say is the range of uh, cost for these service dogs? Uh, so, you know, uh, we've been able to get them uh, fr- from a great organization in Ontario called Searchlight Service Dogs um, for around twenty to 25000 And is that a good price? Now, yes, and, you know, we've, we've heard nothing but great things from the handlers of these dogs as far as the success. Uh, and they are, you know, an organization, you know, we continue to support. Um, what, what are some of the higher price tags that you've heard of? Uh, 35 is probably, like for a, a psychiatric assistance service dog, that's about the highest I've heard. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're getting into things like seeing eye dogs, like those are the Cadillacs of, of service dogs, right? Like they cannot have a fault for very obvious reasons. You're, you know, you're looking at, you know, not far off of what you suggested, you know, for 35 to 40 grand or more uh, for a, a seeing eye dog. Right. It's a heck of a lot of training. Uh, absolutely. And it could, well, if you don't have it, if it's not done right, so for seeing eye dogs, uh, if do you know, is there a national certification for seeing eye dogs? Um, I don't know to answer that correctly, but I don't think so. Hmm, that's surprising to me. Uh, yeah. b- being something that should be so universal. Yeah, I would assume that that certification, you know, should there ever be success for Service Dog Act federally, uh, that would all be the same. They would all be lumped into the same thing. Why do blind people not go skydiving? Scares the hell out of the dogs. I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think we're about there. Uh, Is there any, uh, how do people get a hold of VA? 
Yeah, so uh, you can look us up. Uh, we have a website, uh, www.v-eh.ca. Uh, of course, uh, social media, we're on Facebook as Veterans and Everyday Heroes, same with Twitter uh, and Instagram. Um, you can find my service dog on Instagram as well as OPC Riggs. If you need a healthy dose of handsome dog, then check him out. Uh, and then I myself, uh, Andrew Goff, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, right now, you know, we're having a campaign to assist uh, you know any uh, vulnerable veterans or, or first responders this holiday. Uh, so if you have a family that, that you think uh, can benefit, reach out. Andrew, thank you so much for the, all the work you do. Thank you for your service and your continued service. I really appreciate you being on the show to, um, uh, to tell the audience a little bit about VA and the work that you do. Appreciate that, Mark. I echo that back at you and, and thanks for the work that you're doing to, help veterans in this current situation doing my darndest please stay on the line yes. you're listening to operation tango romeo the trauma recovery podcast for veterans first responders and their dogs hello friends thank you for tuning in to operation tango romeo the trauma recovery podcast for veterans first responders and their families We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible. With a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud.